everyone. Thank you for coming to the IFG. It's great to see you all at another oversubscribed Brexit event here. Um, and back by popular demand, after his first outing uh, in uh, February, we have, uh, we're very delighted to say, Hilary Byrne, Chair of the Commons Committee on Exiting the EU, who needs no introduction, really. So the plan today is uh, Hilary and I are going to um, have a conversation to begin with for about 20 minutes. And then we're going to open the uh, floor up to questions, um, and I'm sure there'll be no shortage of those. So, Hilary, welcome. Hannah, thank you very much for the kind invitation. Um, so, congratulations on your re-election as chair of the committee. No one else stood. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to begin with, reflecting on the uh, work that the committee's done so far, um, how effective do you think the committee has been? Um, what, what are the main things that you've achieved so far? Well, some people said, because we're the largest select committee apart from the liaison committee, we have 21 members. Uh, we have a range of views, uh, positions taken in the referendum, and the truth is that Brexit politics has an impact on the work of the select committee as it has a work on impact on the work of parliament and the country. Some people said you'll never agree anything and you won't produce any reports. <coughs> In defence of the previous select committee, and I'd like to thank all of my colleagues for their cooperation, we had our moments, but we produced three reports. One was looking at the scale of the challenge, the second was on the rights of EU citizens here and Brits abroad, and the third was assessing the white paper which the government eventually published on its negotiating objectives. And I think I point to three things. Well, I think we, we had some effect, but along with others. Firstly, in our original report, we said, you're going to need transitional arrangements, you know, which was not popular with everybody at the time. Uh, it has proved to be thus, and the Prime Minister uh, announced that the government would be seeking those in her speech in Florence. Secondly, we said, Parliament is going to need a vote at the end of this process, at a time when the, the government hadn't conceded that. Indeed, when I questioned the Prime Minister last December in front of the Liaison Committee, she didn't want to give that commitment. The government eventually did so. And um, thirdly, we said, you can't carry on saying our aim is to get the best deal and in response to any further questions to say, I'm not going to give you a running commentary, which was the position. Remember, we said you're going to need to publish a white paper for heaven's sake. And the government did so. So I, I would hope that we had some impact upon that. But I would say it's been a team effort. I'm not claiming all the credit for the select committee. So what did you learn in that first session of the committee which you're going to do differently in this second session? Well, the fact that we managed to produce three reports, I, I'd like to keep that up. Obviously, we've had some change of personnel. I think the most important thing that I have learned every single day in this job, I've learned something new about the potential consequences of Brexit. And I know a lot more now than I did before. And I would sum it up thus. Over 44 years, this process of um, meshing of our politics, our um, way of trading, selling services, sharing information, uh, working with our colleagues on foreign policy, defence, security, the fight against terrorism, has become like this. Now, the referendum result means that that is going to happen, and the debate now is to what extent those things are going to be recreated in a different form. Because if you read the papers that publish, the government published over the summer, I think the customs union one was the most striking, because the government said, we are leaving the customs union. Uh, and then they said, actually, we'd like to recreate a customs union with the EU to all intents and purposes, while we also go off and try and strike trade deals with other countries in other parts of the world. Um, someone described it to me thus. They said, the task we've got is to rescue the valuables from the burning building. You can probably guess how they voted in the referendum in uttering that uh, remark. But I meet everyday people who look at me and look at what's happening and say, what is the outcome going to be? I know how it works today. I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work in the future. These are the particular interests of the, of the uh, tech sector, those who handle data, people who deal with food safety, people who sell financial services, 
people who are at the moment have rights of audience in courts in Europe. Are we still going to have rights of audience? Every single area of our national life, every business, every job depends on it and lots of other things, including the lives of EU citizens here and the 1.2 million Brits who've exercised their free movement rights abroad. All of those will be affected by the outcome. It's incredibly complex and very difficult and we are now about a year away from the conclusion of these negotiations and the clock is ticking and we haven't even got on to part two, moving beyond the citizens, Northern Ireland and the money. So uh, as you say, the clock is ticking. What is the priority for your committee right now? Well, we've uh, agreed two inquiries. One is on the EU withdrawal bill. And we decided to look at some particular aspects of it because lots of other committees are doing work on the withdrawal bill and we didn't think it would be sensible to seek to duplicate all of that. And the Procedural Committee has come out with its report this morning on a sifting mechanism. Personally, I mean, the committee hasn't taken a view yet because we haven't published any reports, but personally, I think a sifting mechanism is going to happen in some shape or form uh, because a Parliament will require it. So we have looked, first of all, at the extent to which the bill will offer certainty in transposing EU law into UK law and some questions of interpretation. The second issue we've looked at and, and taken evidence on is the impact on the devolution settlement. Because, as you know, Scotland and Wales have said, well, we're not happy with the way the government has structured the bill, basically saying... These powers will come back to the UK government, we'll then talk to you and then decide what to pass on. And the principal position that the Scottish and Welsh governments take is no, 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 no. Agriculture, justice in the case of, of Scotland environment, these are our powers. They currently rest with the EU. When they come back, they're coming to us. Um, so we need to find a way through that. And thirdly, we looked at some of the implications for consumer rights, and other particular aspects of that. We've lost, of course, a whole period of time in which we would have been scrutinising the EU withdrawal bill, which, by the way, we did call on the government to publish in draft, but they did not do so. I would observe, speaking personally, uh, I think that the, the forward path would have been a bit smoother had they done so, because they would probably have teased out earlier the reservations that a lot of people have about aspects of the bill, including the Charter of Fundamental Rights and the question of the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. If I can use the opportunity of this question just to draw everybody's attention to the answer that Steve Baker gave to me in the committee when he came to give evidence on the bill, because he, he said, and this was new, that the government... Uh, except now that there will need to be separate primary legislation to implement the transition agreement. And this was very, very significant. Because if you're going to need separate primary legislation to implement the transition agreement, i.e. you cannot do it using the relevant clause of the EU withdrawal bill, then why don't you have that bill also covering the divorce settlement and the nature of whatever agreement is reached on future trade and market access? And I think that that is very significant because there is Dominic Greaves' amendment that is down in the Commons calling for a separate bit of primary legislation. Uh, there's all the debate about what is a meaningful vote. Well, I don't think it would get much more meaningful than Parliament voting on primary legislation to implement uh, the withdrawal agreement. Um, so that was, uh, that was an important bit of evidence that we received. The second inquiry, basically, is the negotiations, which gives the Select Committee sufficient freedom and flexibility to look at any aspect of it. And it's the same approach we took in the previous incarnation of the committee, rather than have lots of agreed separate terms of reference for lots of things. We will look at the, the aspects that we think are not being covered by others, are particularly interesting, crucial at this time, to give us the flexibility, because the clock ticks on us too, and if we're going to have influence on what is happening, and providing a running commentary on negotiations is a slightly unusual thing for a select committee to do, but that's what is required of us, given how this process is unfolding. So as you say, the government didn't exactly deliver 
the your committee and others, including ourselves, were, were calling for the EU um, withdrawal bill to be available in draft. Governments talked about really engaging Parliament um, in the process of Brexit um, and hasn't necessarily delivered on that to date. What would you think the government ought to do differently? There's a whole lot more Brexit legislation coming down the track. There is. I, look, I've, I've said this in the House of Commons. I think the government has had to be proked and prodded and cajoled into taking the role of Parliament in this process seriously. Um, because we have no intention as Parliament of being a bystander. We are a key participant in this process. And in the end, we are going to have to vote on the final deal. And the outcome of the election and the balance of votes in the House of Commons now really does bring that home. Good example, last week, the Opposition Day motion on these impact assessments that the government had announced in the summer it was doing, published a list as an annex to a letter it sent to one of the Lord's Select Committees, and then we had the debate in which the government said, well, we're not going to oppose the motion, I presume, because they didn't think they could defeat it if they had opposed it. And now uh, I'm engaged in, in uh, some correspondence with David Davis about the process by which this material will be released to the Select Committee. So that is, I mean, that's a very good indication in the same way as the, uh, why has it taken so long for the withdrawal bill to come back to the Commons for its committee stage? Because there's loads and loads of amendments and the government, I'm sure, is thinking, well, how are we going to manage these? And they're paying particularly <coughs> close attention to the amendments that are signed by Conservative backbenchers for obvious reasons. And I would expect the government to come to the House and during the course of that committee stage to indicate where it's prepared to, to move and to think, unveil specific proposals and say we'll come back at report stage, and then it has to think about what it's going to concede in the Lords, because I'm sure the Lords will give it a hard time as the Lords give every bill, a hard <laughs> but properly scrutinised time. We'll come back to the withdrawal bill, but just on the impact assessments, yes. um, what is your hope about what the committee will see and when? Well, as soon as possible, because the government I said in my letter to David Davis, you've got the material, so you need to release it to us. But what I also said, both in my speech in the debate and in my letter, is I'm very happy, and the committee is, to hear from the government, once they've released the material to us, what are the bits that they're worried about. Now, there are... The, the committee, it's the predecessor committee, accepted. We said, this stuff should be published as long as it doesn't undermine our negotiating strategy. And I accept that argument. Keir Starmer accepted it from the opposition dispatch box. I'd say most members of parliament do. So there may be stuff that is commercial in confidence. Uh, there may be things which, when you look at it, you think, uh, right, well, that really would undermine the negotiating strategy because I don't want to publish stuff about negotiating fallbacks, red lines, tactics. Um, that would not be sensible. But the government's best assessment of the economic impact of the different options. Now, we hear less these days, mercifully, about no, well, I was going mercifully about no deal. Um, um, the thing about no deal is there is undoubtedly not a majority in the House of Commons for no deal. So there's not much point about saying, yeah, we might walk away and have no deal. Because one, I don't think Europe believes for a second that is a credible position to take. Uh, and secondly, Parliament isn't going to vote for it. But it's the economic assess assessment that we'll be interested to see. And then it will be the committee that decides what is then put out in the public domain or where the committee is persuaded that there are elements of the material that shouldn't be published for the reasons that I've just set out. Now, I think that's the fair, proper, prudent, sensible approach to take. And we will do that when the material gets released. How soon that will be depends on the government um, doing so. Sooner you hope than the 12 weeks they said that they would Well, take I did refer to the 12 weeks in my letter. The reason being, it was referred to in the press notice that Dexia put out that evening, saying we will respond, we respect the decision of Parliament, but we also have an obligation not to release stuff that will damage the negotiation. And this is what Andrea Leadsom said. But it was an answer given by her in response to other opposition day motions being passed. And my point in my letter to David Davis was 
It's not like you need, you know, a, a motion is passed calling on the government to change its policy, then it's reasonable for the government to say, well, we need to have a conversation amongst ourselves about how we're going to respond and so on. That is not the case in this instance. This is about material that is clearly in existence, because if it wasn't in existence, why would the government say, we're not going to publish it? <laughs> Uh, and therefore, if it's in existence, it shouldn't take too long to give it to us. And I, wouldn't I certainly wouldn't expect it to take 12 weeks. And what does the... Is, is this a case of a select committee acting as a conduit to make government more open by taking receipt of these reports? Or is there something the committee is planning to do with them? Or do you see that as, as well, that, that is something for other select committees? Well, in fairness, the... I mean, the request didn't come from us. It yeah. was the result of an opposition motion. As I told the House last week, Keir Starmer did speak to me the day before, and I pointed out to him what the predecessor committee had said about the need for transparency but not publishing anything that damages the negotiations. And that, indeed, was the argument that he advanced uh, in the debate. But, of course, the, Parliament having, the House of Commons having decided we should receive the material, then... I've set out in answer to your earlier question how I would propose we deal with this. And I, I'd make this other point. When I reflect on my ministerial experience, I mean, a lot of impact assessments passed before my eyes in my red box. I confessed to the House last week, I can't swear hand <coughs> on heart, I read every single word of every impact assessment because I needed to get some sleep. Um, and I hope I don't shock you by saying that. But the thing that struck me is we had impact assessments for relatively minor, straightforward stuff. Here is the biggest, most important decision we are trying to give effect to since the end of the Second World War, our most complex negotiation. And no impact assessment has been published by the government on what the implications are of the different potential outcomes. And when you think about it... Um, that is pretty extraordinary. And on something like the decision to leave the customs union, that is a major policy decision that the government has taken without there being debate in the nation. I know it's hotly <coughs> contested because those who campaign for leave claim the referendum result means we're leaving the customs union. No, it doesn't. It means we're leaving the institutions of the European Union at the end of March 2019. All those other things the nature of our future relationship on trade, market access, security cooperation, everything else is up for negotiation because it's about what is in the best interests of uh, the British people. And it would have been nice, indeed prudent, to have seen an impact assessment on the relative benefits of leaving the customs union as opposed to negotiating new trade deals with the rest of the world to have informed a decision by the government about whether to leave the customs union. Now, my personal view, I'm on the record as saying, I think it's a profound mistake for the government to have decided to leave the customs union. 44% of our exports go to the EU, a further 17% go to countries with which the EU has negotiated deals on behalf of us, a further 19% goes to our largest single export market with a country with whom we don't have a trade deal, the United States of America. So we're doing quite well with the US not having a trade deal, what exactly would the American administration want us to sell more of if we had a trade deal? And what would they want to sell us in return? And how long is that going to take? Is Japan going to negotiate a bilateral deal with the UK before it negotiates a deal with the EU? I don't think so. How are we going to renegotiate those 50-plus deals? Because they may say, cut and paste, great. Or they may say, well, of course we're happy to continue. But since it's now a deal between us and a market of 65 million rather than 500, can we just add this, 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 and this? And then you get into trade negotiations, and everyone in this room knows that trade negotiations can take a long time. It took Canada seven years to do the CETA deal with the EU. You mentioned uh, your question to the Prime Minister in the Liaison Committee. When are we next going to see the Liaison Committee holding the Prime Minister to account? Well, when the Liaison Committee is established. Now, I'm not... I. I don't, does anyone know? Did they put anything to the House last week? Yes. Decision tonight. Because this was raised, and the Speaker said some pretty clear things about his displeasure at the delay in re-establishing the Liaison Committee. Well, that's good to hear. So I'm not sure whether there is yet... I think there is a proposed date. And anyway, that will be for procedural business for the Liaison Committee. And I'm sure the Committee will want to 
Chief and the Prime Minister again soon because it was, yeah, December last year was the last occasion. Going back to the withdrawal bill. Yes. Um, so you talked about the sifting mechanism. As you say, the yeah. procedure committee has today published a report with quite a um, maximalist interpretation of what a sifting committee might look like. Um, what other uh, amendments do you see being having a possibility of being made at committee stage? Well, there is, there is that where I'm sure there'll be some movement, although <laughs> a lot of the proposed statutory instruments will be, I think, quite routine, mundane and sensible. It, it also depends on the extent to which the government seeks to use the mechanism in the withdrawal bill to progress some of these issues, as opposed to the follow-up legislation. Take, take the interesting example of air quality legislation. Now, at the moment, we have an enforcement mechanism, the Commission, infraction proceedings, the ECJ. Uh, to which body in the UK does the government propose to give the responsibility for enforcing air quality? Will it be the Environment Agency, for example? Uh, or not? Or will it be a new body? What power will it have to say to the Mayor of London, Leeds City Council, to name two cities where we're not meeting the air quality standards? Or if you don't do something about this, then there's going to be a consequence. What will be the right of the public to hold those... Um, local authorities or mayors and the body that has responsibility to account for their abiding by or not abiding by the standards. Now, I would say that is a pre pretty big policy question. Um, and therefore, where is the government going to seek to resolve that? Will it be using the powers in the withdrawal bill? Will it be follow-up legislation? So there's that. There's the Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, where we took evidence and some of our witnesses said we think it's important but we we're finding it difficult to point to particular examples where it is informed mainly the interpretation of cases that have appeared before the court others have said it is quite clear that it has a beneficial impact and therefore it is not correct to say that its um, non-transference will have no impact on the state of law and people's rights in the UK as you may have noticed, um, when Keir Starmer spoke in the second reading debate, he drew on the case, the statement of case, that the politician known as David Davis before he became the Brexit secretary, and Tom Watson had argued with the government over data protection and investigatory powers, and one of the things they prayed in aid in their statement of case was indeed the Charter of Fundamental Rights. So they obviously thought it helped them in that argument, and if it helped them, then my personal view is I think it should be available to help everybody. So we'll have an argument about that. Devolution, how is this going to be resolved? The one thing that everybody agrees on is there does need to be a discussion about agreed frameworks. I think there are two issues here. One is you don't want devolved governments to adopt policies that actually interfere with the operation of a single market in the United Kingdom, potentially. I think the second issue for the government is, with an eye to future trade deals, they don't want to be negotiating with the Americans on, say, <coughs> chlorine-washed chicken, only to have to confess late in the day that I'm sorry, but the government of uh, Scotland or Wales or whatever has decided that it's not having chlorine-washed chicken in its supermarkets, and therefore you're only negotiating with England for that part, or England and Wales, or whatever it is. So I think those are the two motivations. You have to find a way through that. And the quicker the parties can meet, and there's been an issue about the Joint Ministerial Committee. It hasn't met very often. There's been a lack of trust, I think it's fair to say. The sooner they can get round the table, go through the lists that the government sent to the two devolved governments and say, well, this is straightforward, but let's talk about this, then I think the decision about how the powers come back becomes a lot easier. But I think the government understands that it's got to deal with that. And then finally is my point about separate uh, bill for the withdrawal agreement where there is uh, Dominic's amendment. But I am surmising on the basis of Steve Baker's reply to me, because when I put that proposition, why don't you cover all of it in a separate bit of legislation, <coughs> I paraphrase because I can't remember the exact words, but he said something like, that's a very good point, well made. And when a minister says that to a select committee, <laughs> To me, that kind of suggests that their, their mind is moving in that direction. 
Very good. Well, I would love to keep going, but Why I think you? I'm going to have to uh, open up the floor. So I think uh, Jill has a microphone. So show of hands for anyone who'd like to ask a question. There's a lady here in the front row, Jill. My name is Tessa Shushkovic. I'm an Austrian journalist here in London. Um, can you be, is it clear to you what will happen on the vote on the final deal in Parliament? Will that be a vote saying yes or no to the deal? And if you reject the deal, it will be a dropout uh, without a deal? Or will it mean that Brexit is rejected? I mean, is, are we totally clear about how the framework of this vote will be set? Did everyone hear the question? Yeah, fine. Can um, we take a another couple of questions? Oh, yes, of, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, what uh, happens on the vote? Yeah. Uh, Richard Middleton, just as an individual citizen here oh in, the second, in, the, in the second row. When we entered what has become the EU, we did so step by step, um, taking a series of decisions through Parliament, through the country as, as well, and knew very clearly what was being decided at every step because there was a treaty or a document of, of some kind. And overall, Parliament was adequate as the machinery to make those kinds of decisions. If you look at where we are now, you've been describing various mechanisms. If you take a step up away, sort of helicopter view, yeah. have we got the machinery in place to be taking the scale of decision appropriate to exiting the EU all in one go, and at the same time, not having the destination clearly described? Right. Okay, and then there's gentleman at the back. Uh, ben Alexander, I wanted to pick up on the first question. Yeah, <coughs> which is what I infer, and I think everyone infers from this expression, meaningful vote, yeah. is that Parliament can in some way influence the outcome. Yeah. But is it a necessary condition for a vote to be meaningful that Europe reacts in it to some way? And if so, do you or anyone have any insight in how Europe would react if, for example, Parliament decided to reject the deal that was on offer? Right, well, let me link... The, the, the f your question and yours, and then, Richard, I'll come to yours. Uh, there's a variety of possible <coughs> outcomes. Indeed, one of the other things that David Davis said in evidence to us was uh, no deal is not one thing. You could, have, you could have no deal with literally nothing. You could have no deal with some bits in it agreed. You could have no deal with rights of citizens protected. The flights continue. So there's a, there's a variety of options in those circumstances. Look, I think the best outcome that we can uh, hope for at this moment is as follows. And I say this because although the government continues to proclaim that it will be possible to negotiate and tie up all of the details of this bespoke new deep and special partnership, personally, I don't see how it can be done in 12 months. I don't know anybody in Europe who thinks it can be done in 12 months. Indeed, Michel Barnier, when he gave evidence to a Lord Select Committee, he said, well, this will take several years. And therefore, you could have a situation in which there's a deal with three parts. Part one is the divorce settlement. With any of the things it has been possible to agree relating to the divorce, obviously that would include the money, EU citizens, <coughs> maybe or not Northern Ireland, because my view is you can't sort out the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic until you've sorted out how trade is going to work between Dover and Calais. I don't think there is a separate process that involves no uh, infrastructure, no cameras, nothing. And there's you know, real political meaning to there continuing to be no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic for reasons I think everybody understand. So that would be part one. Part two would be the nature of the transitional agreement. And we need that, in my view, precisely because we are not going to negotiate the whole of the future arrangement in 12 months. And then the third would be a declaration that the two parties, the 27 and the UK, will negotiate thereafter an association agreement and that would set out the things it's going to cover. It could be a longer list, a shorter list, more detail, less detail. I think that is possible, but tying up the details 
exactly how it's going to work will require the transitional period to make it happen. Now, what would Parliament do in those circumstances if that is what is presented? Personally, I think Parliament would vote for that. They're not going to say, away with that, we'd rather have no deal. Um, and that is absolutely what we should be aiming for. Now, there's a lot of complications because how long is it going to take you to negotiate that bespoke deal once the transition begins? What will Europe's terms for the transition be? If you haven't finished the negotiation of the bespoke deal and two years has passed, what do you do? Now, that's why Keir Starmer very sensibly said, in answer to the question, how long should the transition last? It's also the answer to the old question, how long should a piece of string be? It works in both cases. He says, as short as possible, but as long as necessary. And the long as necessary is, I think, the important bit. Um, so that's one outcome. <coughs> the deal may come with aspects that Parliament likes and some that it doesn't. I think it's perfectly possible for government in those circumstances to say to the British government, uh, you need to go back in and say, I'm afraid our Parliament isn't having this. Because after all, the European Council, as well as taking a decision by QMV, um, by the way, the final bespoke deal is inevitably, I think, going to be a mixed agreement, and therefore it won't be QMV. It will be approval by the Parliament, including the regional parliaments, of every single EU member state. And that alone is a process that's going to take time, hence my previous point about how you conclude that uh, within the period of the transition. And that is why completing the negotiations in about a year's time is actually important from Parliament's point of view and having a meaningful vote. Because if you get up to the wire in March 2019, how can you have any time to do that? Because the clock is going to run out. And that is why when David Davis suggested we might have the vote after we left, there was a bit of a reaction. Um, and the government made it clear, no, 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 we are planning to conclude this process in the timetable that has been uh, set out. As I said earlier, there's no majority for leaving with no deal at all in the, in the House of Commons. That's my assessment. It hasn't been tested, but uh, that is my judgment as to where Parliament now finds itself. And if it is separate legislation, then that gives Parliament the opportunity to express the meaningful nature of its opinions with much greater clarity and force than if it was using the mechanisms that the government is currently proposing in the EU withdrawal bill. Now, Richard, um, well, we've uh, the government's been given its instructions by the electorate, and the Article 50 mechanism provides for two years, as you know, unless you extend it. And uh, the government formed a judgment on when to trigger it once the Julie Miller case had been concluded. I think it's fair to say, and the Institute for Government has done a lot of work on this, that Whitehall is basically doing Brexit, 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 and it's quite hard <coughs> to see what um, thinking and certainly legislative space there is to do other stuff, because the withdrawal bill will take a lot of time. And then there's all these other bits of legislation the government is having to recruit additional folk in departments as it comes to grips with the complexity because all of society is queuing up in its conversations with sponsoring departments and Dexu to say, now you really need to take this on board. Um, what's going to happen to the future of the way in which trademarks are dealt with, to take an example? How's this going to work? Um, and sometimes people will say, the government does a lot of listening, which it certainly has done. People aren't entirely sure what has been taken on board and how it's being worked into the negotiating priorities, which is another reason why you can't do it in 12 months. Because if you were to sort all of these things out, the future of passporting, um, are we going to be part of the European Aviation Safety Authority going forward or not? A very sensible thing to do. Otherwise, the CAA will have to take on a load of engineers to certify the same planes, the same aircraft, as anyone else, or you just say, whatever EASA decides, we'll say that's fine by us, and we'll avoid taking on the staff. Now, those are the kind of options, but you need to work that out. And every, in every aspect of national life, you see that uh, reflected, never mind getting a custom system that could cope with something that is different from what we have today. And we went as the Select Committee to Dover three weeks ago, 
and you really realise when you stand on the sixth floor of their control tower looking down at this train set flow of trucks, why this is a place that could not cope with any delay, more checking, because the entire system works on the ferry arrives, the trucks come off, they go like this, up the ramp, down the ramp, and they're off. And if you're having to produce more paperwork, Dover said, it would produce a 17-mile queue up the M20, and Calais says it would affect them too. So it's a huge task, and as ever, our civil servants uh, do a fantastic job and are responding to it, but it's a big, big, very, very complex challenge, and that's one reason why we do need <coughs> more time to get things sorted, and that is another argument for having a transition which basically says, well, let's leave things as they are for now yeah, while we try and sort that out. Yeah. What? I think I hear you say no in answer to Well, that. I'm... Well, I think the other thing, to be honest, the other reason why there's a difficulty has been a lack of clarity from government about what it wants. Now, you hear in Europe people say, we know, we know the Prime Minister says she doesn't want an EEA to be an EEA. We know that she doesn't want a CETA-type deal. What does the British government want? And I do think, you know, the moment we get on to part two of the negotiations, you know, the government is going to have to set out to the... 27, what it is that we're seeking in terms of that uh, agreement. That's the first point. And the second point is, look, it's an open secret that there are differences of opinion within the Cabinet. And I think because of that, positions have taken, my view, this is a personal view, not the Select Committee's, positions have taken longer to be sorted. I it would be very interesting to have seen what the conversations were to get to the Prime Minister's speech in Florence that said, Transition, staying in the ECJ, keeping free movement, single market, customs union, given positions that some members of the cabinet have taken during the referendum and things they'd said subsequently. And I think that's also a difficulty for civil servants because civil servants will always say, give us a clear steer as to what the policy is, what you want us to do, and we'll go away and work on it. If that's not arriving because there's delay or you hear different things from different ministers, that is a problem for civil servants. Those in the room with, who've been civil servants can say whether they agree or not. It's also a problem on the other side of the channel because our interlocutors say, when a minister speaks, is this a new government position? Are they talking to their fellow cabinet members? Are things going to change? And that is not in the national interest. So, but that's in the government's hands, not civil servants. This, I'm going to take this opportunity to flag two ah. IFG products which relate to what you've just been saying. So we've, these are, there are copies of this, these available on the table outside. But one is a list of questions we think select committees ought to be asking government oh departments about yeah. Brexit at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, which relates to the point that Hillary is making um, about you know, civil servants um, doing their best to get ready for whatever is going to come. And the second is this um, timeline which sets out, based on what the government has told us so far... Um, what needs to happen in the next 12 months and... Uh, can I pinch both? You can. <laughs> and if anyone else would like to pinch them, uh, as I say, copies, uh, copies available, available. outside. So can we take some more questions? Um, this lady in the back row. Hi, I'm Sue Street. I was a permanent secretary, so thank you for your kind words. And then I was a non-exec at the Ministry of Justice. Uh-huh. Um, one question and one plea. The question is quite technical. I asked it here once before in a room full of lawyers, and I got more answers than there were you lawyers, the lawyers in the room. Yes, I'm not a lawyer. No, so I'm not neither am I. But like I think it, it okay. probably, I'd be interested in your view, which is simply this. I'm not divorced, but I understand that in a divorce, if the parties can't agree on the financial settlement, yeah. <coughs> the uh, arbitration is done by a court. So my question is, which court in this instance will decide? The plea, from really from experience, is that it is very, very hard for select committees to keep information in confidence once they <coughs> have it. Without casting aspersions on individuals, I have only known one occasion in my entire career when a select committee held, um, in that case, security information in total confidence. So is there a way, given that if the impact assessments suggest that it's all going to be an unmitigated disaster, that might undermine our negotiating position. 
So I wonder if you have some way of reassuring government, citizens, everybody, that uh, although transparency is good, this would actually be constructive to our position. Could you pass it? This lady here. Thank you. Uh, my name's Sarah Main. I'm the director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. Hello. Now Hello. I'm meeting you later. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the science community, um, there are many tens of thousands of uh, EU citizens working in the UK, and it's an ongoing concern uh, about the uh, reassurance about their rights. Um, I wonder if you could comment on, on what your view is as to when we might realistically expect some certainty on that question. Yeah. Because to in my mind, there's one option, which is, you know, nothing's agreed until everything's agreed, which means it won't be until right at the very, very end. Yeah. The science community, I'm sure many others are looking for something a little sooner. Can I just say, I forgot to say at the beginning, if you're sitting in our overflow room and you would oh. like to ask a question, please take the highly technical option of walking to the door and sticking your head around. <laughs> um, so if there's anyone in there, then please do come through. Uh, there's a lady at the back. Birgit Maas, I work for German television. I was wondering, exit from Brexit, is there any scenario that you think um, might make this possible? And if so, how would it technically work? Very easy question. Okay. Um, the financial settlement first. I mean, ultimately, this is a political negotiation. Any government in these circumstances would say to itself, well, I have one card, which is the money. And I've said many times before, I think in the end the negotiation will come down to Britain says, here's what we're prepared to pay. Now show me what deal you're prepared to offer us in terms of trade and market access. That is a rational approach to negotiation. And therefore, offering all of that and tying it up up front limits its leverage effect over here. Hence, on that, Nothing's agreed until everything agreed is sensible. The question for now is, what is going to change between the last European Council and December to allow Michel Barnier to say to the Council, actually, I think we've made sufficient progress, let's move on. Um, and I'm sure the government is considering carefully how it can ensure that we get to that stage. Because if you don't move on in December, then you can't, as David Davis told the Select Committee, go in and get as much... Uh, certainty about the transitional arrangement because that is the number one priority when you get on to phase two because the whole purpose of the transitional arrangement is to offer some comfort to firms particularly in financial services who are renting the office space beginning to talk to staff about moving because they are preparing for the worst possible outcome because there is no certainty and if jobs go tax revenue goes that's bad for the public finances and that's why the chancellor in evidence, I think, for the Treasury Select Committee, announced the transitional arrangement as a wasting asset. It's really valuable now. It's not so valuable next summer. First point. Um, I, I don't think that the question of the money will end up with a court or a tribunal because it's a political negotiation. However, we are going to need adjudication mechanisms to cover a whole load of aspects of a final deal, including EU citizens, trade market access, lots of stuff. Um, the sensible thing to do would be to agree a hybrid body, and we might as well agree that now in relation to the citizens, because the EU says the ECJ must, for the next you know, 50 years, decide the rights of some people living in Britain, although we'd have left the organisation 50 years ago. Now, I think there's a bit of a problem with that myself. The Brits could equally well argue, well, in that case, the Supreme Court over there is going to oversee the rights of the 1.2 million Brits in your member states. Because if you don't trust us, then we'll use our court to do that. Well, the sensible thing is to say, look, we're all going to honour our commitments. We will set them out in detail. The government has said it will put it in the deal. It will have the force of an international treaty. Let's give a hybrid body the responsibility for uh, doing that. Well, I think the, on your second question, I trust and hope that the Select Committee will take its responsibilities uh, exceedingly seriously. I would observe that if all these impact assessments said it's all going to be fabulous, they probably would have been published already. 
you might argue. Uh, I've no idea what they do say. Um, they, I've literally no idea what they say. Um, but Parliament was clear in passing the motion, the material must be passed to the select committee. And as I made clear in my letter to David Davis, it is the responsibility of the select committee to decide what is or is not published. But we are absolutely open, as I said in answer to Hannah's earlier question, to hearing from the government. And if they make a good case on the grounds that I set out, then I'm sure the select committee will uh, honour and uphold that. Sarah, on look, on the EU citizens, we, the one report we agreed with unanimity last Parliament was the government should give a unilateral commitment to the EU citizens so you can all stay, which is fine. In her speeches, the Prime Minister has said that. And look, let's be frank here. Of course, all the three million EU citizens who are here are going to stay. What, what, what does anyone think is going to happen? Now, there is the outstanding question of family reunion rights, which is a bit tricky, because uh, at the moment, EU citizens have better rights than British citizens. For example, bringing a spouse from outside the EU. So my constituent, who is Polish, can marry someone from Ethiopia and bring them over, and there is no income requirement. His neighbour, who is British, who also marries someone from Ethiopia, can only be joined by his spouse if he earns £18,600 a year. And I'm sure one of the things the government is weighing up is to what extent do we continue? Now, that is the result of government policy. Let me make this clear, because that rule didn't exist previously. The current government brought it in. Um, right of adult children to come and live here if they've been studying away for time. And I, I really hope that they reach a sensible agreement on that because there's a legitimate expectation on the part of EU citizens, elderly relatives who, who need care and they want to come and live here for their family members to provide care. But there's no doubt about that whatsoever. The one tricky problem for the government will be the documentation of the three million citizens because um, they will need some document or stamp in their passport to say, I'm one of the three million, you can give me a job, because I continue to have the right to work, as opposed to an EU citizen who arrives the day after the end of the transitional period, who will be subject to whatever uh, immigration control or system or work permit arrangement that the government puts in place. And as an employer, you'll have to be able to distinguish between the two, because one will have an automatic right to work, and the other may not. At the moment, you just see an EU passport, and it's fine. So. The Home Office documenting, it comes back to your point about capacity. Well, that is a job and a half, because you know, all MPs will regale you with tales of problems that can occur with the Home Office in taking decisions about people's lives, and three million is a lot of people to uh, deal with. Um, I, I don't see any sign at all that the British public has changed its mind. There's been a little movement in the polls, but not fundamentally. Uh, coming to your question about an exit from uh, Brexit. The British people knew the decision they were making. They weren't asked, we're having a bit of trouble with this, can you give us the benefit of your opinion? The referendum said, you are going to make the decision. And Parliament will respect the decision. And that's why I, as a passionate Remainer, voted for the Article 50 legislation, because as a Democrat, I have to accept that I lost. And all of us who were Remainers, we lost and we will be leaving the institutions. Um, and I don't see that changing as things stand at the moment at all, and it's important that everybody understands that, including those in Europe with whom we are negotiating. But as I said earlier, everything else about the nature of our future relationship is now a matter for negotiation. Right, we've right. got one question here. <coughs> Peter Runwin from the Whitehall and uh, Industry Group. <coughs> Those who are calling most specifically for a transition, primarily in business, uh, say that it's only in use if it uh, come if it's mm -hmm. known and certain sort of very early next year. Do you think there's any realistic chance of that at all? And secondly, given the complexity that you've talked about and the difficulty for the British government to get its position, and let's note that it's actually going to be pretty hard for Europe to get a common position, 
much easier for them to agree on money and citizens' rights than on trade. True. Uh, true do you true, think true. there's a danger that even though nobody wants no deal, or you don't think there's a majority for no deal, you simply fall into it because nobody can agree on anything? Sally Greenross, crossbench peer. Um, I've been at meetings with um, the uh, pharmaceutical industry and the motor manufacturers industry, looking at their worries. Um, and is there any way you think that something can be agreed more quickly for some areas than others? Because uh, we're going to, I think, have enormous difficulty uh, not just talking about the price of a car or something, but real difficulty in the fact that to make a car, there's transition across many, many countries. Yeah. And they're making plans now, and it could be, I think, very disastrous for our trading future if some of these decisions can't be taken quickly. Yeah. And then there's definitely the... <coughs> Hi, my name is Bagya. I'm a civil servant. Um, I was wondering if you're aware of any kind of transitional agreements that the EU would actually be unwilling to offer to us, that they would just say no to. Right. Well, let me start with that, and then I'll come back to, to Peter and Sally's question, because there's a, there's a link between them. My understanding of the position they have taken, if you look at the European Council's negotiating guidelines, there's a section in there that says any such period or arrangement would have to follow all of the current rules. And there are those on the, on the other side of the negotiation who've said, look, we are not going to negotiate a, a bespoke transition with you. If you want to carry on, um, then you're going to carry on with this, this and this. And when I questioned David Davis, when he gave evidence, I went through all the things to ask, is it your expectation on behalf of the government that we will remain in the single market, customs union, free movement, uh, ECJ, remain in the agencies? Really important issue, which is an interesting legal one, because some of those agencies currently say you can have non-EU member states associated with them, associate members, and others say no, it's only if you're an EU member state. Schengen Information System is currently only available for members of the EU. Now, the transition would have to cover that information being uh, continuing to be shared with our law enforcement agencies because they really need it to stop bad people getting into the country and nicking those who need to be caught. So that is my, that is my expectation of what the EU would say, but we are currently waiting for them to respond to the request that the Prime Minister made in her Florence speech. Now, uh, Peter and uh, Sally, well, everyone is in a hurry to understand how it's going to work. Um, the reason why financial services has dominated in, in the debate, or been at the front of the government's mind, put it this way, in the debate about the transition, is because given passporting, They've sat down. The regulators have said, well, what's your plan for handling a possible no agreement outcome? And their risk managers have been asked, what's the worst that can happen? No deal. Therefore, the head of Goldman Sachs, what, tweeted? Was it last week or the week before? Been in Frankfurt. Expect to be spending more time here because they've taken offices there. And therefore, how quickly... It, it is absolutely the question, Peter. How quickly can that transitional agreement be reached? And will that give firms sufficient confidence, including legal confidence, that it's okay to pause on the relocate button for some of their staff? For financial services, don't get me wrong, the Oliver Wyman report published, uh, I think it was about a year ago, said you could be talking about the, the lower or higher tens of thousands of jobs relocating, but we've got over a million people working in financial services. London will remain a big and very important uh, financial centre. But even that number of jobs going, that's a lot of tax revenue that isn't available to support the NHS and schools and police and everything else. Um, I think the difficulty about trying to get industry-specific agreements 
Sally, is that a lot of them will be really are bound up in the same question. If it's to do with tariffs, are we going to have tariffs or not? I'm pretty confident we'll end up not having any tariffs because that would be ridiculous for that to be the case. Where it's a lot more tricky is, of course, the single market. What degree of access to the single market we have? There's our own debate about free movement, uh, which is what, um, for some people, gets in the way of just saying, well, we ought to stay in the single market like some other non-EU countries. For, for car manufacturers, uh, yeah, tariffs, obviously 10% is an issue, just in time, Dover, delay. Some, you may see some companies manufacturing in Britain who decide, as a precaution, to increase the amount of their supplies they get from in Britain to reduce their exposure to potential delay. But who would today decide to invest in a new manufacturing facility in Britain when there's no certainty or clarity at all about what future trading relations are going to be with our biggest single trading partner? And the answer is nobody would. So there are investment decisions on hold and there are investment decisions that aren't even being considered, about which we know nothing. And this is the country that has been the most successful nation in the EU in attracting foreign direct investment, more so than France and more so than Germany, which was a very good reason for not having voted the way in which the nation did in the referendum. But anyway, <laughs> the people... Anyway, I made that argument repeatedly and it didn't do much uh, good. Um, finally, coming back, Peter, to your point about the common EU position. It is a very, very interesting question because at the moment they have maintained uh, unity and for all of them, maintaining the unity of the 27 is the overriding consideration. Some people argue that the EU may be prepared to put the maintenance of that unity above what we might regard as immediate economic self-interest in the same way as some people voted to leave the EU because they thought something else was more important even than their own economic self-interest. So if that's a view that some people in Britain reached in deciding to vote to leave, don't be surprised if the EU isn't prepared to do the same. But within that, someone described it to me as like an egg. The outer shell it seems pretty firm, but it's swirling around inside when it comes to money or what happens to trade. Some countries have very close trading relationships with us. They worry uh, about the impact of all of that. Some regret, of course, very much Britain's departure because we've been natural allies on a whole number of issues. There's the security question. Now, I know that covers both the EU uh, and NATO. Um, and I think the vast majority of countries would like to reach a sensible deal. And it gives me the chance to make one final point on this subject. Europe has two choices about how it approaches this. One is to say this is a pesky problem we have to get rid of, and then we'll have dealt with Britain and we can get on with the future. There are two different schools of thought in Europe about what the future is. One is the ever closer, faster, deeper union. See uh, President Macron's speech, what uh, Mr Juncker said. But that is not, in my view, a view shared by all of the 27 member states. There is also a view which says a multi-speed, multi-layer, more flexible EU is more sensible. I know we're leaving, but I'm definitely in the second camp because I think the lesson of history for all entities, empires, whatever you want to call it, and I don't say that's not disrespectful, but you need to adapt to prosper and to survive. You do. And many of those countries know that the forces that gave rise to the 52% in Britain are present in their own countries. Why does not a single European country want any treaty change that would involve a referendum in their own country? Why? Because they're not confident they'd win it, even if it was to change the word A to the word V. Now that tells you something about the politics, and I think a different way of approaching it is thus. Say to yourself, okay, this is the first time we've negotiated with a country that is moving away from us. This is the first for the European Union. All the other deals, Greenland apart, they've been coming towards us. Let's think about an association agreement with the UK as providing a template which we might use for relationships with other countries in future that would like to come towards Europe but don't want to join the 27 and take on all of the obligations. And I think if we look at it, that in those terms, then we can reach an agreement which everyone in the end will be content with rather than an agreement which leaves the EU grumpy and Britain grumpy because two parties in a divorce negotiation, you end up grumpy and not going to have a very good relationship going forward. 
And we want to have a really good, friendly relationship with our European friends and neighbours who will remain thus even though we're leaving the institutions of the European Union. So. Well, on that optimistic note, Ooh. I think we'll draw things <laughs> to a close. Have we run out. Okay. We fine. have run out of time. Um, so I hope you'll join me in thanking Hillary. <laughs>